Hey Crossings podcast community, this week's teaching is called Mu and is part 10 in our series on the book of Luke. It was taught by Molly Conway on November 19th, 2023. Thanks for listening. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Good to see you all. Um, so as much as the internet is like destroying our brains and all of our relationships, uh, sometimes, like once a year, I will get on the internet and think like, man, people are so funny. Like, have you ever had just, again, it's like destroying everything I realize. But sometimes it's like, there's some funny stuff out there. One of those things, um, there are a couple Instagram accounts for millennials. Um, It's a lot. It's dramatic. I realize this. But it can be really funny. Um, Mostly, it's like memes and cartoons about that thing that happens when you turn like 30, 40, where you're just like tired all the time. Um, And like all you want is for parties to be done by 9 p.m., like nothing after that, right? Um, it's got like 3 million like viewers of some of these Instagram accounts just talking about how tired you get when you hit 35. Anyway, I am totally reading into this. Uh, I have no scholarship to back me on this. Um, I'm, gl- I'm not seeing any of the New Testament like scholars in the room, so that's good. Uh, I read the text today, uh, Luke chapter 9 and chapter 10. Um, I think Jesus is starting to get tired. Uh, He's in his 30s, so that tracks. Um, But I sense that Jesus getting tired over the growing crowds, over the growing questions, tired of having to explain yet again that there's another way than the power and the wealth and the controlling empire, tired of being misunderstood, tired of explaining, yes, again, he's on the side of actual poor people. And maybe it's the kind of tired that my therapist and social work friends and my public school teacher friends feel after so many days of advocating, digging deep into themselves to find the compassion. Um, Passion fatigue, is that what we call it? Like, do you think Jesus, who's also God, could get compassion fatigue? Well, would it change anything for you if he could? Maybe it's the kind of tired black folks feel when they're asked to yet again explain themselves to white people. Maybe it's the kind of tired my queer friends feel as they yet again approach their families this holiday season, extending the invitation for peace and participation in the life of the family. It's, it's the kind of tired that comes with rejection, I think. And you'll see this theme of rejection in our study today. You may disagree with me. You may see a different Jesus. And that's okay too. This week is uh, week 10 of a 23-week study of Luke's writings about the life of Jesus. And we are attempting uh, to enter into these stories each week, some of them very familiar. Um, We're trying to enter into them and be surprised at the Jesus we find. We are going to take a break after this week from our study of Luke to enter into a season known as Advent, a time of preparation and expectation leading into the Christmas season. Uh, And it's a good time to take a break because today's text takes an important turn in Luke's gospel. Okay, one more thing before we get into it. Uh, There's an author, an American author and philosopher named Robert Piercig. He wrote the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Has anybody read this, by the way? Okay, Uh, yeah, you would. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean that. If you know David, you know he would. Um, 
I have not read this book, but some of my favorite authors speak highly of it. In it, Piersig talks about the questions we ask and the questions asked of us, and how sometimes there are wrong questions, bad questions, because the questions are too small. And he gives suggestions of how to answer these questions that are too small. And you know how much we value questions around here. Uh, it's been part of who Crossings is since the beginning. It's amazing how even 17 years later, I hear stories about how you all ended up here because you had questions about faith that weren't welcome in other places. So as much as we love good questions around here, I'm surprised I haven't come across this earlier. But Piersig says that the, the answer, the appropriate answer to questions too small is this Japanese word. It's, it's a word and phrase popular in like the Buddhist traditions. And it's the word mu, M-U. It literally means nothing or without. He says that mu is the appropriate response for when the small or shallow questions are being asked. He said it states that the context of the question is such that a yes or no answer is an error and should not be given. Unask the question is what it says. Move becomes appropriate when the context of the question becomes too small for the truth of the answer. Move is the response for when there is a better question behind the question. Should we tell God to destroy these people? Who is my neighbor? Are two questions asked in our study today. Two questions Jesus seems to answer with Mu, ask a better question. In today's text, I see a Jesus who's becoming tired of questions too small. All right, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want you to read with me the part that's underlined. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Here's where the writer, Luke, alerts us that we're taking a turn in the narrative. Jesus has been engaged in ministry and teaching and healing and bringing to life. And now he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Cue a new chapter. To set one's face is an idiom. We see it in other places in the Bible it's a resolve, it's a decision to head in a certain direction. And that direction for Jesus was towards Jerusalem, which is more than just geography here. Jerusalem is where Jesus would ultimately confront the powers of this age and the next, where the ultimate attempt at power and control would be enacted by putting Jesus to death on a cross, only to reveal that even death the question of death is too small a question for Jesus. One commentator says that Jerusalem is a city of fate and destiny, where God's plan and the rejection of the prophet are realized. Luke highlights these themes through the journey motif in ways the other gospels do not. He set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus was not naive to the direction he was headed. His radical teaching and healing and raising up and restoring in the name of God. The direction his radical inclusion would lead him to, it would lead him to Jerusalem. It would lead him to the ultimate attempt of rejection. So he sent his messengers ahead of him. 
On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And as will come up later in this chapter, the Samaritans had a tumultuous relationship with the Jews. They were enemies. The Samaritans hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. The two groups had rival temples, rival priestly families, rival claims to be God's chosen people, rival views of who would be God's Messiah. They were not friends. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Bad question. But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. So this is either tired Jesus or tired Luke. Like, we don't even know what Jesus said to rebuke them. Like, did Luke censor out some cuss words here? We don't know. No, Jesus said, I don't want you to command fire to, like, consume them. Jesus and his disciples had entered this town of Samaritans and are rejected, which shouldn't be a huge surprise. And James and John are probably feeling, I guess, pretty jacked on their divine power, kind of missing the point, also missing any teaching about, like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Their response to the rejection is by using some supernatural power to to call down from heaven and destroy. But the group keeps moving. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm thinking about using this one with my family and people who try to convince me to stay up late. Like foxes have holes, guys, gotta go to bed, sorry. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this can seem kind of harsh, can it? someone wanting to follow Jesus, but also like trying to take care of family funeral arrangements. Um, Burying would be honoring one's father. Uh, It would have been required by ancient Jewish laws. It would be an expectation in the Roman world. So what's happening? Uh, We don't know. I don't think Jesus is saying, like, get over it, don't even grieve. Uh, There is a Jewish funeral custom where a dead body would be buried in a tomb and then a year later reburied. It's likely that Jesus was talking about that year in between, but we're not sure. But Jesus is telling his followers about this life following him, this life of faith that he's calling them to, and the way it's a reorganization of former allegiances, with the result that one may be called upon, as in this case, to engage in behavior deemed deviant by normal convention. But this is the nature of the kingdom of God in Luke, which makes its presence known through a reordering of the character of human interaction. Basically, Jesus says, this life of faith is going to look a little different, a little upside down to some folks, a little upside down to the way things have always been done. And it, the kingdom of God he's talking about, 
is going to be worth continuing to move forward and not looking back. And, and this phrase, the kingdom of God, that comes up over and over, it keeps showing up, especially in these chapters, it seems to be increasingly like serious in, in the way we read it today. And I sometimes wonder if we have a hard time conceptualizing this because we don't really describe what we live in as a kingdom. We use this image of an upside-down castle for our study of Luke. Uh, but even a right-side-up castle, it's hard to understand in the modern world we live in. See, the kingdom of God is more than a location. It's even more than a place like we'll get to someday. It's more like a way life works. It's more like a condition, a way of being. And the way life works in the kingdom of God was pretty threatening to the kingdoms of earth at that time. Because the kingdom of God isn't flashy or in your face. It isn't demanding or built on the backs of control or oppression or power or greed or wealth or exclusivity or division. But rather, it's a kingdom where the lowest and the least are raised up, where the people who are least likely to get it do a kingdom that those who think they know everything and are certain about everything don't. A kingdom where the lost find their way back and the sick become well and the captives are released. And this is the kingdom, this is the kind of life that was inaugurated with Jesus and it was spreading. And as Jesus' face is turned toward Jerusalem, the reality of the kingdom of God is becoming especially urgent. And more people are starting to talk about it. So Jesus says to them, go on your way. And, and so far, you might notice, in just 11 chapters, we have the phrases to go, while going, his face was going, they went, as they were going, along the road, wherever you go, let me go, go. In 11 verses, it's as if our spiritual lives are not confined to a building or a specific group of people, but rather worked out along the way, as we go, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Go on your way. I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So stay focused, he says. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house, shalom to this house. And if a person of peace is there, this is so interesting, so you can read the Hebrew word shalom here. If a person of shalom is there, your peace, your shalom will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and give it back. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. You know, I've never been in a situation where I arrive to a place that I think I'm going to stay for the night, uh, to rest after a long day of travel, only to be told no. 
But these are instructions from one familiar with suffering, from one familiar with rejection. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah would say that he was despised and rejected among men familiar with rejection. And as Jesus and his followers go along the way, even in places that they might be rejected, they come across these people of peace, these people of shalom, where the posture of the relationship has undertones of well-being, of reconciliation, of wholeness. Amy Jill Levine and Ben Witherington say the next verses, the ones we just read, demonstrates that peace or shalom is more than an abstract concept. It is something that can be both given and received and even shared. The peace the disciples convey can rest on, even as it can bring rest to the receptive householder. But if the peace is rejected, the emissary regains it. Thus, peace never leaves the followers. It is theirs to distribute and to share. What's interesting is that Jesus, Luke, never talks about these people of peace with any more description than their being people of peace. Nothing about their economic class, nothing about their political opinions, nothing even about their religious affiliation or doctrinal beliefs. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in what these people of peace believe or think or know. He cares what they do and how they act. He cares about their welcome and their hospitality. So the people Jesus sent out return with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said, Jesus said, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning Indeed, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Uh, I wanted to cut this part out because it's weird, (laughs) the snakes and the scorpions thing. Um, Caleb said no. He said it being weird is probably a good reason not to skip it, and he's right. Here's the thing. The ancient world is enchanted, much more enchanted than we see our world today. Luke regularly writes about this supernatural adversary, the accuser, the Satan, the chief of evil that are opposed to God's good intent for the world the opposing forces that seek to pervert and distort and overthrow the shalom of the kingdom of God. Could this be in reference to a political opposition? Maybe, but it's more encompassing than that. Jesus is having a vision here of the beginning of the ultimate end of the evil and chaos and destructive forces that are stirred up by this Satan, the accuser. And also, as part of this enchanted world, a commonly held idea, one that exists in our world today, is this vision or belief in like a heavenly record book. That in the end of time, communities, particularly oppressed communities, could take solace in the fact that despite the evil they see in the world today, despite the rejection done to them today, their lives were very much included in this book of the next age where things aren't as hard 
that the next chapter that is good and peaceful and at rest and whole had their names in it and that it would be good news and better news than today. And for those who are starting to get itchy at this point about the amount of like supernatural, spiritual world afterlife stuff, we arrive at a very earthy story in Luke's gospel, a story that most of us could tell by memory. Verse 25 of chapter 10, an expert in the law, a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, well, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He's speaking to the lawyer's professional expertise. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. And it could have ended here, the conversation. But wanting to vindicate himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers, Mu. Ask a better question. Martin Luther King Jr. says that Jesus immediately pulled the question out of midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. He tells a story instead. He says that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and remember, shortly before this story, Jesus was rejected from lodging in a Samaritan village. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. This compassion is like a gut. This is like a gut-level feeling. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating him with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave him, them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever you spend. Amy Jolivine says, this is generous. It might have also been threatening. Like the Samaritan I'm coming back, just so you know. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Some translations say, go and you will live. This is one of the most beloved stories in our Bibles, uh, which means we, we might have missed the point. <laughs> Often the parables Jesus told uh, would offend its listeners. Not always, but it might mean if we're not offended, we might need to sit with it a little longer. First, I'd like to suggest a different title than the title we've always given this one. The Parable of the Good Samaritan. What it implies is that the Samaritans, the rest of them, aren't very good. Amy Jill Levine says, if Jesus were a Samaritan, this story would be the parable of the good Jew. In our time, it might be the parable of the good immigrant, or the good Muslim, or the good proud boy. 
you can start to see how this title has become problematic. Barbara Brown Taylor says that one way to reimagine this parable is to imagine that the hero is the last person in the world you want to call good. Who is the last person in the world you'd like to thank for helping you out? I don't know where this story needs to happen for you, but you do. Jesus sets up the story almost like a joke. He says, a priest, a Levite, and a who? Walk into a bar? A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan? To go from priest to Levite to Samaritan is tantamount to going from father, son, Satan. Samaritans were the enemy, Jesus' audience, identifying with the man in the ditch rather than the Samaritan, might think to themselves, the Samaritan is coming near to kill me, actually. But he doesn't. He comes near, bandages his wounds, transports him to care, and pays for all of it. Of all the things the Samaritan does, that first verb might be the most important. He comes near. And as with the people of peace, Jesus, again, doesn't seem to care what the Samaritan knows or believes. It's what he does. It's his actions that matter. Again, Amy Gillivine and Ben Witherington say, Samaritans are not Gentiles. They worship the God of Genesis, that is, the God of the Jews. They follow the laws of Torah. They claim the same ancestry. Whether they are in or out was a debated question among Jews. However, when it comes to whom to love, whether one is an insider or an outsider, a neighbor or a stranger, does not matter. Love is indiscriminate. Do all my Hamilton people here love? Do not discriminate anybody? Okay. That's the most I've ever sang here. (laughs) So if we want, we can settle with the message of this story being, if you see someone in a ditch, go help them. That would be fine. But I'm starting to wonder if the story that Luke tells, that Luke finds important enough to tell us about Jesus is not so much about the Samaritan or the Levite or the priest or the man in the ditch for that matter. Again, you might disagree with me, but I'm starting to wonder if the story is mostly about the person we most leave out, and it's the lawyer who asks Jesus the questions about, like, how do I know? And who is my neighbor? Because as much as we'd like to be confident about how we would definitely be the ones that would help that man in the ditch, chances are we're most like the lawyer. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks, testing Jesus. And I mean, it's not unreasonable to like test somebody who claims to be speaking for God. Like if all of a sudden I told you that I'm speaking directly from God and God is saying like open up your Venmo and send me directly some money, I hope somebody would test me on that. What must I do, he asks. Well, what does the book say? What do the rules say? Jesus asks in return. And the man quotes his ancient tradition. And Jesus says, okay then, go do it on your way. But who is my neighbor? And there's a question behind this question, isn't there? He wants a boundary. By wanting to know who a neighbor is, he wants to know who a neighbor isn't. 
He wants to know who is in and who is out. He wants to know, we want to know that we're in, don't we? And that we're right. There's an Irish poet named Padraig Otuma. He said, what was the man's deepest question? What was his question behind the question? Maybe it's something like, if everyone's my neighbor, how do I know that I'm good? In this parable of the man in the ditch, Jesus tells the lawyer that his life, his flourishing, his goodness is ultimately bound up in the life and flourishing of the person he wants very little to do with. So go, be, do on your way. Attired, Jesus says, with your words and with your actions, be about the life and the flourishing of your neighbor. That's anybody who needs you. Move in, come near. Because when the roles are reversed, and we are the ones in the ditch, struggling, suffering, near death, the question about who is my neighbor doesn't seem to matter much anymore. The question's easier to answer. It's anybody who's going to come near. Would you pray with me? God, we have a lot of questions. They're not always good ones. They're not always deep ones. Please help us see our questions behind our questions. Would you give us another chance this week to participate in the healing of the world? Would you help us see the world the way you see it? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. 